Well, good morning. Give you a welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ as we have uh, gathered to, uh, to worship him. And um, the only thing I would note for announcements, um, you know, don't forget to keep putting change uh, in those baby bottles. And um, although if you're concerned about coin shortage, which apparently there is, just put dollar bills in there and that would take care of that, that problem. Um, keep in prayer your uh, pastoral search uh, team committee. They've begun to, uh, to meet, and they certainly um, value your prayers for them. Um, now let's prepare our hearts for worship. I want to greet those who are worshiping with us uh, online and delighted that you're able to join us and for worship as well. And for those who have already been complaining about me having coughing, this is a special tea to lubricate my throat. So that's that's what that's about. Now let's, um, for our call to worship, let me read from Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. And we do have come for that purpose, our God, to rejoice, to exult, to, to give to our God all the glory. We pray for the anointing, the blessing of Your Spirit to be upon us that we who have come you in the name of Jesus Christ, through him, through the work that he has done for us, 
that we might truly offer to you a worship that honors you, that gives your name the glory that is its doom. In his Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing together. Uh, Here is love. Confession of Faith is taken from the Heidelberg Catechism, questions one and two. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Let's turn now to the Lord in prayer. Let's begin by praying together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And we do give you thanks and praise, our Father, that you are the one who dwells in heaven. And may we who are here upon this earth give you 
do honor for your name. May we serve your kingdom. May we do your will upon this earth, both in not only in our deeds, but in our very thoughts and our very emotions. May we have the same desire as our Lord Jesus had, which was to do your will. We pray that you give to us this day our daily bread, the bread of your word, the bread of worship and fellowship. We pray for literally the bread that we need as well, all the physical things that we need for life, but not only that we may live life, but that we may thrive upon this world serving you. Give us all that we need to be servants of yours, to be children who honor the name of their Father and do your will. We pray that you would forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so we pray that you would give us such a spirit to be as one who forgives others, who does not hold others in debt, uh, but are willing and, and desirous all the more to put the past behind us. We pray that you would forgive us for the sins in which we have failed to love you, uh, fully with all of our hearts and minds, in which we have failed to love our neighbors, ourselves. We pray that you not lead us into temptation, but all the more we appeal to you. Deliver us from the evil one who seeks our harm. Deliver us from the world which so easily entangles us. Deliver us from our own weak flesh which so easily gives in to the evil one and to this world. We pray this prayer recognizing to you as the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me now to uh, Hebrews and chapter 5. We'll begin with verse 11. You'll find that text uh, in your insert if you'd like to follow along uh, using that. Well, doctrine. The very sound of that word is dry. It's unappealing. Doctrine, we believe, divides. Doctrine dries up the passionate heart. That's the attitude of many Christians. Well, the author of Hebrews thinks it's ignorance of doctrine that actually leads Christians away from a passion for Jesus. Look with me now as we begin in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, let me just make a start off at the beginning saying this is such an ironic statement. It's not intended to be by the author, but it is. He wants to explain more about the concept of Jesus as high priest, and particularly that line about being in the order of Melchizedek, and, uh, but he's frustrated. He thinks his readers are are dull of hearing. Well, the irony is this. Everything that he's now about to say, which is basically just complaining about them and warning them, it is so complicated that the best minds, the sharpest minds, the most studious minds, all debate over what he is actually trying to say. So what we're simply going to aim for this morning is the gist of the argument. It is clear 
that he considers his readers to be immature in their faith, that they are not growing. And let's continue in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. These readers here that the Hebrew author is writing to, they are like me when I was in high school studying geometry and algebra. I found it difficult to remember these laws and principles that you're supposed to build upon. I had to keep going back over and over again to the basic principles. And so neither subject was something that I could master. I mean, I got by enough so that I could pass the test, but I never thrived on the knowledge. And please don't ask me anything about either subject now. So in like manner, the readers are still wrestling with fundamental ideas, and they are not growing spiritually. Now let's continue, verse 13 and 14. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now take a look at that phrase there, word of righteousness. It exists nowhere else in Scripture. Now without taking you through all the all the different interpretations, and there are many different ways to interpret them, I'll just give you my own take, and that is I take it literally. I think he's saying that the readers are unskilled in understanding what the Word of God teaches about righteousness, about righteous living. He makes a contrast to their lack of skill in verse 14. With those who have powers of discernment trained by constant practice to do what? To distinguish good from evil. So these readers are unskilled in understanding biblical righteousness. It's a skill that can only be honed by experience. Now let's continue on. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, let me say again, there are differing opinions among commentators and scholars on just about every single word and phrase that's listed here. I mean, the only thing that they all agree on is that these readers are stuck. They can't move from basic teachings, whatever precisely those teachings might be. They do agree, for the most part, that these teachings come in pairs. There are three sets of pairs here. There are the repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Most commentators consider the dead works to be evil deeds, to be sins. 
So, for example, in Galatians 5 and 19 through 21, just before you have the the verse about the, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul there lists works, using that same term, works of flesh that keep a person out of God's kingdom. And what they might also be saying here is that these are simply fruitless works. They're dead in that way. They might be works that belong to legalism or to, to ritual, but they do not actually profit the doer. Well, in either case, the first step is to repent. And to repent of one's sins, whatever form they might take. And then the second step is to turn in faith to God. And that is what one does in and through Christ. So repent and believe. These are the elemental steps and doctrines of Christ. Now, the next pair listed here are the most difficult to to understand. Washings is literally baptisms in the plural. Although even then, it's not the precise form of the Greek word that's used in the rest of the New Testament to mean baptism. Probably what he's meaning here is summed up in a term called ablutions. And ablutions were rituals of cleansing. Uh, that was certainly prevalent in Jewish practice that's observed in the Old Testament. One time the, the Pharisees are complaining that Jesus' disciples are not going through the proper ceremonies of washings. It's probably what the term is referring to. The laying on of hands, that's a common ritual also in Jewish practice. It's continued into the church. We read about that, the apostles doing that a number of times in the book of Acts. Well, whatever is precisely indicated, it's evident that these washings, the laying on of hands, they are associated with practices that are known to the Jewish believers. That's who the the writer is most likely writing to, Jewish believers. And at least with the laying on of hands, these things are continuing in the church. So they know what he's talking about, whereas we probably They're still trying to figure it out. And the third pair is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And they point to the doctrine of end times. What theologians refer to as eschatology. It's a time when the day of the resurrection, the day of judgment will take place. Now, interestingly enough, one commentator points out how when you look at each pair of doctrines here, you see how they take you through the Christian experience. You have repentance and and faith. That's for our justification. Whatever exactly the the washings, the laying on of hands are exactly doing, they, they are involved, they're exercised by the church for our sanctification. And then, of course, resurrection and judgment refers to the time of our glorification. Well, We have very rapidly, I have very rapidly taken you through these verses, sort of understanding their references. The question is now, what can be made of them in such a way that they're going to be useful for us today? Well, the first lesson is this. We must move forward in our Christian faith. We are to move forward in knowledge. We're to move forward in practice. We're not to be that student in class 
who interrupts the, the teacher who's lecturing eloquently on something. Is this going to be on the test? Do I really have to know this? Nor are we to be the athlete who complains to... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm chuckling. At 9.30, everybody chuckled, laughed that one. But uh, Okay. Not to, we're not to be the athlete who complains to the coach in practice. I already know how to do this. Why do I have to keep doing it? Learning and practice must be our way of life. All educators, all coaches, and you, all successful people, you understand this principle. There is no such thing as, well, I've reached a peak level, I can just sit back now. And it'll just stay that way. You know that you either grow or you're going to shrink. If you have a business, a business might even die. And even because even to maintain where you are requires constant learning, constant practice. There is no athlete who can reach a stage in which he or she just no longer needs to practice. If anything, the higher the level of skill, of competency, the more practice required to maintain that level. Learn, practice. Learn, practice. Now, the same is true for the spiritual life. It is true that the gospel is simple. All I need to know to be saved is Jesus. To, to trust him, to know what he's done for me on the cross and to trust him. I mean, it can't get simpler than that. But the truths of the gospel can, and they must continually take stronger hold on me. The gospel is simple, but it's also profound. And I must, if I'm going to grow in Christ, if I'm not going to regress, I must continually learn and build on the gospel truths. Now, what is it that we need to be learning? We need to be learning doctrine. Now, if that has a negative ring to it, then all the more you need to give it attention. Doctrine simply is this. It's the truths taught in Scripture about God, about what God wants us to know. And so knowing these truths is critical to growing in our faith. Our reader here, he wants to take his readers deeper into understanding the doctrines about Jesus. And he's frustrated. And he's frustrated because of their lack of interest. Now, you have to ask yourself that question. Do you have the same problem? Do you regard studying the characters of of God, of studying the will of God and the works of God as just, you know, these are like elective courses. It's It's interesting. You know, for some people, they have an interest in theology, but it's not needed for the average Christian. Are you impatient with teachings about doctrine? Because what you're really interested in is is knowing what to do or, or how to be helped. You see, that's the way I am about computers and technology. I do not want an explanation of how things work. I just want to know what buttons to press. And that, that helps me get by, but then that's all it does. Now, if I would take the time, you know, I mean, I, I get by until 
again, something happens to the computer or to the cell phone, and I have to yell out, Yvonne, come help me. Make this work. Well, if I would take the time to actually understand, actually listen to Yvonne, try to explain how things work, I would not get stuck as often. And I would expand the ways that I can actually use these strange devices and and those apps and stuff. But the truth be told, I really don't care. I really don't care to take the time to learn. Well, are you that way with doctrine? I mean, it's true that there are Christians who have a a special aptitude for learning this kind of stuff, the, the language and the concepts, and they get jobs as theology professors. It is true that a minister ought to have aptitude for academic theological study. But all of us who are Christians must be interested in learning as much as we can. It's just simply this way. How can we claim to love God and have little interest in learning about him? How can we claim to love Jesus without interest in understanding who he is and what it is that he's done for us? And that's it. That's, that's all that doctrine and theology are about. And so we should be interested in doctrine for God's sake. It's because it directs our thoughts to who he is, directs our thoughts to how he operates. But also this, doctrine is the most practical tool for how to live in this world. Let's go back to our author here with his his readers. He's teaching, and he's about to really go into some complex theology. But who's he teaching? He's teaching lay people. And he's teaching them, though, for a practical purpose. He sees that they are in danger of falling away from their faith. That they might give up. So he thinks to himself, well, what does he need to do? He needs to teach them theology. And so he teaches them about the divinity of Jesus. And, hey, Jesus is much greater than angels, whom you are starting to give more attention to. He's teaching them how Jesus is the Sabbath rest. We rest in him, not on our works. He teaches them how Jesus is their high priest and and what Jesus does for them in that role. Because he believes that the more they understand about Jesus, then the stronger their faith will be. The stronger their will will be to stay true to him. And the same is true for us. The deeper our knowledge of God and his ways goes, the deeper it goes down, the stronger our faith will be. Now, having said that, knowledge, by that I mean head knowledge, is not all that we need. We have to put that knowledge into action. We have to practice righteous living. It is putting knowledge into practice that's essential to retaining and to growing in knowledge. Look with me again at uh, verse 14 in chapter 5. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now note here, he says the solid food of doctrine 
It's only for the mature. Only they can handle it. But the maturity is not defined by academic learning. It's defined here by experience, by having one's power of discernment tested over and over again. And even then, know what the discernment is about. It's not between fine lines of academic distinctions. It's distinguishing good from evil, right from wrong. This is a crucial point in Scripture. Nowhere does Scripture separate knowledge from righteous living. And so if you go to the book of Proverbs, you'll read, the wise man is always the righteous man. And the righteous man is always the wise man. You can't separate them. And so the test for the true theologian is not how well they can answer doctrinal questions, but rather how godly a life that they live. How well they actually love God. And they love his neighbor. You know, coaches, again, understand this principle. They'll speak not only of teaching their, their players skills and playbooks. They can, they can get them to do that. But their real goal is to get their players to buy into their system. Because it's only then that the players will play at their peak. It's the same way for Christians. We can learn the language. We can become adept at discerning fine lines of theological thought. But it's only when that language, it's only when the the doctrine that's being taught, it clicks inside. It's when we, that's then when we buy into the truth revealed. That's when it's going to impact the way that we live. And it's only then that we can be said to be growing in Christ. So what should, be, what should have been happening to these Hebrew readers as they learn about the doctrines about Jesus? They should have been loving him more. They should have been marveling over him more. They should have been resting in him, trusting him more. So much that they would never give thought to returning to their old ways. So much that they should be able to go through any trial, even persecution, gladly. Because of what they know about Jesus. They should be growing more able to distinguish what is of God and what is not. So that they're not tempted to go back to those old ways. They should be able to distinguish between what is good and and what is evil. And then as they practice these things. As they practice resting in Jesus. Trusting in him. Worshipping him. As they practice loving their neighbor. And distinguishing good from evil. They will then understand, understand their doctrine more fully. It will make more sense to them. They'll get into further understanding. Just like the athlete who just one day gets it. It just clicks. Now I see. Now I understand what the coach has been teaching. And so once it clicks, suddenly he blossoms. And his skills grow exponentially. The same way it is for the Christian who gets the doctrine. Let me give an example here where this has happened in our own church. You know, when I I first arrived, I'd be talking to different uh, elders and deacons, and they would tell me, pretty much everyone would tell me of the most significant difference in their spiritual lives. Indeed, they, 
of how it transformed them. It was taking that long, laborious officer training class, which was nothing more than Joe King and then later, now Jim Hildebrand, taking them through the Westminster Confession of Faith, doctrine by doctrine. I mean, these officers, they weren't saying to me, you know, that's a really good class. I I learned a lot that I didn't know. No, they said, my faith, my life was changed. So what do you need to be doing? Well, if you're a reader, when is the last time you read a book about the character of God, for example? About the person, the work of Jesus? Or if you're not a reader, you, you know, you'll listen to sermons that you have pulled out sermons just on doctrinal subjects. When's the last time that you've actually studied a particular doctrine? Well, if you haven't done it lately or haven't done it all, maybe now is the time to do so. And, and I'll go ahead and recommend to you what I've been recommending to everyone else. If you haven't read it, you go order uh, Knowing God. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He'll take you through the character of God, and you will not be the same after you read through that. Now, maybe um, this is not your problem. Maybe you rank pretty high in theology. You've you've studied and you've listened to enough R.C. Sproul books and and lectures, and you're ready. You You could take on any theological test. But has it made a difference in the way that you love God? Has it made a difference in the way that you love your neighbor? Has doctrine affected the way that you practice living for Jesus? For those of you who are married, is your marriage stronger because of what you've learned about Jesus and his relationship to the church? Are you able to listen to people who are different from you better because of your greater understanding now of the incarnation? Does Jesus' lordship affect the way that you operate in the world? Learn, practice, learn, practice. And you will more than persevere in this world. You will glorify your God. You will learn to enjoy your God who made you and redeemed you. You know, that's the reason you were made. That's the first doctrine taught in the larger and shorter catechisms. Learn that doctrine. Practice it, and it will change your life. We do thank you, our God, for the great doctrines and truths of your word. And we pray that we will do that. Learn them, grow, profit from them, so that we might love you more. We might uh, love our neighbor more and honor and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I come down here to the table for us to observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, this is a wondrous doctrine that is before us that we are about to to practice. And let me uh, begin by uh, reading the word as it comes to us from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The doctrine of the Lord's Supper teaches us this. Though our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended on high, that he is with his Father in heaven, he is with us still here. That his Holy Spirit, he has sent his Spirit who dwells within us, who is among us, and that Holy Spirit, in a mysterious way, is connecting us to the incarnated Jesus Christ in heaven. This is not, does not literally turn into his body or into his blood, but it does somehow connect us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is meant to nourish our faith, to strengthen our faith, to all the more to cause us to go forth in this world stronger in our faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's it. Let's take the bread and you you have your cups and you will, everyone's able to peel off the bottom part there. On the night in which our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread, blessed and broken, and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all you of it. Let us pray. We give you thanks and praise our God for our Lord Jesus Christ. For that doctrine of the incarnation by which we know that he has taken on our own flesh. And in that flesh that he made atonement for our sins upon the cross. We thank you for that doctrine of the atonement. Of knowing that he has exchanged places with us. Taken away our sins. We thank you that though he died and was buried that he rose again, and we praise you and thank you for that doctrine of the resurrection that teaches us and gives us the hope and joy of knowing not only that our Lord is resurrected, but we have our own resurrection to look to come. We thank you for that doctrine that he has ascended on high and serves now by your side as our high priest because we now know that he is ever interceding for us. We thank you for that doctrine of that day of resurrection and judgment to come when we will see our Lord Jesus Christ return in all of his glory. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll sing uh, together. May the mind of Christ, my Savior.
I give the benediction, let me remind you, uh, ushers will come and then they'll escort or let you know when to, to walk out. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.